Welcome to Movie Maniacs. Mike Rags and Chuck Curry discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Rags and Chuck Curry. Okay, everybody, welcome to the program. This is our weekly podcast, also heard on WOWO in Fort Wayne, Indiana. This is Chuck Curry alongside my partner, Mike Rags, although Mike Rags is not here this week. So our guest uh, co-host here once again, uh, Kenny B. How are you, Ken? I am great, and because I'm here, you'll also hear us on Cool 98.5 in Phoenixville, which is one one-hundredth of the power of WOWO. Very good. I got a first question for you. How do you like doing the show last week? I thought the show last week was great. I think we had a lot of good stuff. Uh, I, anytime we don't get into everything we want to get into, because we get deeply into something like the, you know, the woke nature of the world now of movies, I think that is that's a good sign. Yeah, I agree. Now I'm going to go right into uh, some breaking news today. Uh, they had the world premiere of James Cameron's Avatar Two: Way of the Water. Uh, theaters need this one uh, to be a good one, get a lot of people into theaters in the month of December. Um, good news to announce. Reviews are really good. The advanced buzz was pretty much outstanding. Now, I've had a divisive reaction to myself, the anticipation of this movie, simply because uh, I wasn't the biggest fan of the first Avatar movie. I did like it. I just didn't love it. I thought it was of the James Cameron bio of movies, which includes some of the great ones in the last uh, 30 years, including Terminator 1 and 2 and The Abyss and True Lies uh, and Titanic. Uh, those movies, to me, are great movies. Avatar was a really interesting movie, but the initial reaction here, according to uh, the trade variety and a bunch of other outlets, that uh, many called it a visual masterpiece, that it was very thought-provoking and had much more of an emotional impact than the first Avatar movie, which hit theaters, which hit theaters 13 years ago. This is good news for theaters because they need people to come into the multiplexes, and that is a good thing. Actually, one uh, reviewer who saw the movie said, uh, this is going to take uh, take streaming to their grave. I don't think that's going to happen, but this is a must-see movie, according to these people who uh, are raving about it on social media to see in a movie theater so at least ken that's good coming off a very slow weekend at the uh the box office so we need to energize people going back to the movie theater in uh the month of december so that's a good thing and hopefully it won't be that we get one every 12 years that's going to be the end of streaming because we need 12 of them a year but i i think it also i think it's premiere was at the odeon in uh in london yeah uh i've been there Oh, have you? Okay, I, that's uh, where I, that's where I saw Casablanca. I did. I did uh, I, I, that's that's. I did. Well, how, how would I know? How would I uh, have 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 known that? Do you have any thoughts on the original Avatar? I loved the original Avatar. I thought it was groundbreaking. I thought it was fantastic. It was the first movie I, I saw it in the theater, but it was the first movie I then also saw on a, a DVD or a Blu-ray. Sorry, Blu-ray. I saw it at an IMAX theater in Reading, Pennsylvania, and. If I looked at it today, it'd be ho-hum. As I, I think I mentioned earlier, I mean, I thought we were all taken by the special effects, nothing great about the story. And yeah. so it's, 
it'll be interesting to see how those effects have increased in 20, in 12 years, or maybe we get a deeper story in it. Yeah, I mean, listen, James Cameron's already talking about doing up to six or seven, you know, Avatar 6 and 7. He's got the next few in pre, pre-production. Um, I mean, I, I find it very interesting the way some of these people's minds work. I mean, there's no doubt this is a very gifted, talented, gen, uh, generational filmmaker. Uh, other than Spielberg and Scorsese, I put Cameron right there as one of the greatest filmmakers of our of our lifetime. He hasn't made a ton of movies, but everything he's done has been uh, very good, uh, has been very popular, and uh, he's what they call a mad genius. Not always easy to work with, although Kate Winslet, uh, in an interview this week, who's, who she appears in this film as a voice of one of the characters, said that he is mellowed and um, he is he is he's much more of a gentle soul than he was when he did Titanic back in nineteen. 19- 97. I hope uh, Ed Harris and Elizabeth Mary Mastertonio got that uh, that info because they had a really hard time on the set of The Abyss. He was really uh, a hard ass, to say the least, on uh, that set. That was a grueling shoot. Having said that, as a filmmaker, Ken, I thoroughly respect uh, James Cameron. And the fact that these reviews are getting you know, so glowing, it, it does sort of motivate me a little bit more to want to see this on its opening uh weekend uh, there was that, there was no chance in the world you weren't seeing that on yeah, opening weekend. I was, gonna see, I was gonna see it anyway but uh <laughs> here's another you, you could be in the hospital and you would go see it probably uh black panther wakanda forever wasn't among grossing film for the fourth street weekend 17.5 million films now done 393 million in, in the u.s and canada almost uh, 800 million dollars worldwide i have to say that is a successful Number here's some good news because you don't see movies like this every day. Violent Night, uh, David Harbor as Santa in a movie that's sort of a cross between Die Hard and Home Alone. Uh, Blue past expectations or tracking did thirteen and a half million dollars at the box office in its opening frame. This is what they considered uh, Ken a mid-range production. Probably production budget was around twenty-five, thirty million. So if it has a few more good weeks. Uh, hopefully it, it at least breaks even or makes a couple bucks at the box office. They're already talking about doing a sequel, which I like because I like this type of a different, um, what they call, you know, more of a chance take lower budget film playing in, in movie theaters. And it's something different and something different uh, is a uh, good thing. Now, here's a story that uh, made uh, the, the wires this week. Uh, Variety reported that Black Adam, uh, the new the superhero movie over, uh, over at uh, DC with Dwayne Johnson uh, will probably lose fifty to hundred million dollars off its theatrical take. The movie's done almost four hundred million dollars worldwide, one hundred and sixty-eight million here in the states. It needed to do around six hundred million to break even. Listen, Warner Brothers Discovery's lost so much money. Uh, over the last year, what's another 50 or 100 million? They have a character that could be spun into multiple films in that uh, universe if they want. And um, the reality is nobody knew who this character was before they uh, released it. They kept the production budget a couple bucks under 200 million. But uh, these are, you know, rolling the dice type movies when you're spending 200 million plus plus marketing costs. So, um, I don't take much weight in that. Nobody was, nobody thought this movie was going to do anywhere near a billion. And if you discount, and I said this before, and I like Dwayne Johnson, I'm certainly a fan 
Uh, I think he's a pretty cool dude. And uh, I like most of his movies. I think they have a lot of entertainment value, including Black uh, Adam, which I, I, I enjoyed. But I would say that um, if you discount uh, the Fast and the Furious franchise and Jumanji, which were more ensemble films, not him as a solo star, if you just take his solo star vehicles, this is where the box office would be expected for Dwayne Johnson uh, movie. So, I mean, it's not my money. Uh, I'm sure they're going to get it back with streaming, Blu-ray, and cable down the uh, road. So that is what that is. And, and that's not chicken feed. I mean, it may not be recovering their costs, but that is a pretty good uh, a pretty good box office. I, I think it, I think it is. I mean, I, I, again, I don't think anybody thought this movie was going to do anywhere near a billion. So sort of is what uh, it is. Uh, some other we'll bounce into some movie news. Uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, which hit the- which hit theaters last uh, holiday season, going to get a sequel. Uh, this time, the story will take place in New York City. Paul Rudd will come back uh, to headline an ensemble cast. It comes out, uh, I believe, next December two thousand and twenty-three. I got to be honest, and I said this on the show with Mike. I wasn't the biggest fan of Ghostbusters Afterlife. I know he liked it. I know most of the general public did. I was somewhat disappointed, even though they got the original uh, cast back in the last act. I, I thought it was mostly a retread. And as much as I love Paul Rudd, I thought his character was a, uh, a carbon copy of the Rick Moranis character from the original. And I was like, you know, why are you doing that? Just do something original. Having said that, it's Ghostbusters. So I'll be there next uh, Christmas season for Ghostbusters Afterlife Part 2, Ken. So you finish your Christmas dinner, and who are you going to call? Uh, probably Ghostbusters. You know, me and Mike have a running joke on this program where he hates the female. A, he hates the female-oriented Ghostbusters movie, and I like that one. And I would take, and now the listening audience, hear hear me out. I would take the female-oriented Ghostbusters movie uh, over last year's Ghostbusters Afterlife. But uh, you know, I guess I'm in the in the pure minority on. Uh, yeah, to, to me, to me, Ghostbusters wasn't the uh, wasn't the story. It wasn't the characters. Ghostbusters was really the actors. And the original Ghostbusters was very much actor driven. Yeah, I mean, and the thing here's the thing: this, sometimes you know, there's a saying in film or in life, you can't go back. And you know, it, while it was cool to see the original cast back, it's you know, people, oh, when's Bill Murray? Bill Murray's about you know twenty five. The 35 years, no, not 20, well, 20, 20 years late on coming back uh, for a Ghostbusters movie as his original character. Um, it just, it didn't do much for me to have the that cast back because I don't think the way they were used was the way I envisioned uh, that, that movie um, materializing. It's just I had something on my head that gave me something different, and, and those two entities, for me, did not... Uh, Mesh. Yeah, I, I don't uh, like. I do not like the idea of doing a sequel twenty years later with the same people because they've they've changed too much. But it can work. Oh, like, okay. Like if you took, uh, like if you took the Hustler with Paul Newman and you watched Color of Money, and there are instances where it does it does work, and there are instances where it sort of falls a little bit flat. But like for me, you know, making a rural Ghostbusters where it takes place in the Midwest. Instead of uh, a major city, right off the bat, I, I had issues with it. Now, this one's going to take place in New York City. 
and, and the original firehouse from the original film is going to be a big part of the storyline. So for me, I find that uh, concept a lot more exciting. Let's touch on. But wait, uh, wait a second. So yeah, for your for your whoa whoa audience, you're one of those East Coast snobs who doesn't think much of the Midwest. You know, I lived in Indiana for seven yeah. years, and we can have ghosts just as well as they can have ghosts in New York. In the cornfields. Yeah. Nah, I don't know about that. Okay, let's touch on uh, the passing of Kirstie Alley at the age of 71. Took a lot of people Shocking. By, uh, by, by, by surprise. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, she, obviously, she gained a lot of clout and a lot of fame. And certainly so when, when she came onto the sitcom of Cheers, Shelley Long was a fixture on that show, left. Her chemistry and banter with Ted Danson was outstanding. But Kirstie Alley more than fit that bill. Uh, and that was an example of a successful show reinventing itself with a new lead character. She did really good. She also got the Look Who's Talking franchise with John Travolta. She appeared in a movie called Summer School back in 1987, opposite Mark Harmon, which was very popular back in the day and was a very popular VHS rental, and it did fairly well in theaters. Um, Very outspoken person, obviously was known to be a Scientologist, I liked her. I, I thought I thought uh, I thought she did good work, and I was bummed to hear her pass. Yeah, I, I was. It's one of those things where I had the phone in front of me, and you get these little headline things, and all I could see was Kirstie Alley, and I couldn't hit on it uh, quick enough to get the story up. And I never yeah. thought it was going to tell me that she had died. But then again, she pretty much. I, I know, she just learned about her cancer, so not only yeah. did she keep it quiet, I mean, she really wasn't aware of it. So it was a uh, it was a major shock. Yeah, it, it was. I didn't. I didn't realize. You know, when I was seventy-one, but uh, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm doing a another spot for like twenty-something years uh, on a national radio show, and you know, every time somebody passes that you know, and obviously we don't know these people to know them, but we know them via the television and the movie screen. But uh, I always find it a very reflective experience. Cause I always think back. Of, of you know the success of Cheers it was very popular a great sitcom and uh, I was a big fan of, of, of Shelley Long but I thought she did a fantastic job uh, in not always an easy situation of a popular show which I, back in the day probably had 30 to 50 million people a week watching it on uh, network television yeah. yeah I mean I heard I mean when we talk about being reflective and all that stuff yeah. it was uh, almost 12 months ago that we lost Betty White and if you remember that I mean I, I saw a country in mourning yeah I I uh, I agree on uh, on that one let's do some um, let's do some this week in, in, in movie history and, and and let's reflect on this get your thoughts December 7 1979 this week in movie history Star Trek the motion picture opened in theaters it was two hours and 11 minutes. Uh, we shot on a budget, believe it or not, of $44 million, which was wildly over budget. That's a lot of money back then. It did gross uh, around $135 million worldwide. Uh, so it got its money back. The original cast came back, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and, and the crew. Here's the thing with that movie. Visually, the film looked fantastic. Directed by Robert Wise, who did West Side Story. The problem is that the story moved like a slug and not a lot happened other than, oh, those are, you know, uh, that's Kirk and Spock back on the big screen. Now, a lot of people after that film came out 
especially the fan base thought that was just going to be a one and done and there'd be no more Star Trek on the big screen. Having said that, uh, before you give your comments on that original motion picture, in 82, Nicholas Meyer had this brilliant idea when he did Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan to look back at the TV show and say, let's find one of the coolest aspects. And he had the vision and one of the most unique uh, choices in the history of genre filmmaking is to take Ricardo Maldobam, who played a TV character on Star Trek, of Khan, bring him back for a feature film on the big screen, and he hit a major home run. That movie was critically acclaimed. The fan base loved it uh, and made a lot of money, and Star Trek, back on the big screen, was off to the races, Ken. Yeah, and a couple things. Was, was the first sure. one The first one was the one about Voyager? Uh-huh. The Voyager, you know, the Voyager satellite. Right. That, yeah, um, yeah, that one was very slow. But then again, their TV shows were never uh, that deep. And that's another case where, you know, that truly was a sequel 12 years after a show which didn't really run that long had gone off TV. But we had watched all the reruns over those years. And they had never had a lot of depth to their scripts. If you go back and watch those old Star Trek shows, it's, uh, you know, the scripts are anemic. But... And I, I didn't like the first one. I think everybody loves Wrath of Khan. But at the time Wrath of Khan came out, yeah. Ricardo Mondebaum was a bigger star than William Shatner or Leonard Nimoy. But here, okay, he, he, you're right. But here's the thing. What fascinated people when Wrath of Khan came out is looking at Ricardo Mondebaum, who I think was like 60 years old, looking at the guy's body, who was in, <laughs> in phenomenal muscular shape. It was like, how the heck is this guy looking this good, but his, he, he was menacing as that character. And, uh, when he was on screen, he was actually, he was a scary, uh, he was a scary villain in that, in that, in that movie. And that, that gave that film a lot of juice. Yeah. I think I first saw that at a drive-in theater, uh, in the, uh, South Bend area. So I, I can, I can remember seeing that film. Okay. And, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and then Star Trek obviously has still prospered, to this day, but if it wasn't for the s- success of Wrath of Khan, I don't think we'd be talking about Star Trek uh, as much as we currently and still do, which I think is a really cool thing. And, and that's one, but that is one case to just sort of uh, go against what we said there on uh, Ghostbuster. That's one case where they redid the entire cast and they continue to be able to do it because we're now used to the new people being Kirk and. Yeah. And I, I got to tell also you, cool, what's also cool about the J.G. Abrams movies, and that cast is fantastic. Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto is Kirk and, and, and Spock. But the fact that they brought the old Spock back, <laughs> Lenny Nemo, I thought it was such a cool touch. And it was so really so well, uh, so well done. Well, if you remember, I, 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 think, I, thought, I think it was the first one. They even had yeah. a cameo by Bones who was walking down the hall uh, in, uh, in Starfleet. So uh, yeah, they so they yeah they they paid homage to the original and uh, they've been able to replace the cast and I I always I enjoy that far more. I was never into Captain Picard because it was a well, totally different story. I, I always thought the biggest mistake in the Star Trek lore was killing off Captain Kirk in the uh, in, in the in the uh, generations one of those generations movies. With Patrick, uh, with, with 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 Picard, Patrick Stewart, because his death scene, Kirk's death scene in that movie, didn't have the emotional impact that it needed. It would that had to be if you're going to kill Kirk, 
in a Star Trek movie. It has to have a massive emotional impact, and it just it didn't. It did not. It did not have that, and 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 they never were able or wanted to bring him back in in another in another. Uh, in another film, so I mean, it is what it is. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing because yeah. I did I did a live countdown and uh, yeah. did the you know coverage of the when Kirk when uh, uh, William Shatner went into space. So yeah, killing his character off when Shatner's gone from that guy that I think we would have liked to see killed uh, to now he's become a, a, a bit of a cult hero. Uh, listen, no, no, he's a pop culture icon. That's what he and, and is. A gr- and a great singer. I love playing his music. Well, I wouldn't go that far, <laughs> but, but I'll, uh, I'll ignore that one. Uh, this week in, uh, in movie history, it's an interesting one. This week in movie history, December 8th, uh, 19, what was it? 70, I think it's 77, uh, Deer Hunter. Uh, opened in theaters, one of the great Vietnam War movies of all time, directed by Michael Cimino, Robert De Niro. Chris Walken got his uh, Best Supporting Actor nomination. That Russian roulette scene is iconic. I remember so many people in my neighborhood uh, used to watch this movie repeatedly and and always talk about that uh, scene. And one interesting footnote to movie history, John Cazale, was in this movie, and uh, he he made a handful of films in seven years, and he wound up dying of cancer. And five of the movies he did were all nominated for uh, Best Picture. He's the guy who played Fredo in Godfather Am- One, absolutely. Uh, and, and okay, and, and he Godfather One, Godfather Two, uh, The Conversation, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter, all nominated for Best Picture. Picture. His career was very short. But boy, what a legacy that actor John Cassell left in the film industry. And he was very well respected. And one, one of those uh, actors, sort of like Steve Buscemi, who, when they come on the screen, yeah, there's, yeah. That, there's that instant sleaze to them. You know? it's, yeah. <laughs> very good. Uh, very good. Comparison. I actually Dog Day Afternoon is one of my all time favorite movies. One of the great dialogue banter movies. Of, uh, all time. Someone was asking. Someone was asking last week on Facebook whether you can be a Hollywood actor, you know, successful and be ugly. And the first one that came to mind was Steve Buscemi. And I mean, well, listen, he's not exactly George Clooney, but uh, you can, you can, you, you listen. You don't have to have amazing looks to be a tremendous. Uh, Tremendous character actor or even actor. I mean, you you could argue. I, I'm not going to use the word. He's not ugly, but like Walter Matthau wasn't George Clooney, but one of the great movie star. I think one of the great actors of, of all time. And I loved, and I mean loved, watching him as a lead in a film, Bad News Bears, taking a Pelham one one two three. Give me a Walter Matthau any day of the week over some of the current uh, actors who headline movies in uh, 2020. Two couple other ones before we get into our main topic this week, which is going to be me and Ken picking our favorite uh, characters in movies of all time. That'll be in a few minutes. So December 9th, 1965, a Charlie Brown Christmas first airs on CBS, uh, a perennial staple every year on CBS in December. Um, I always watched it, Ken. Until this year, when it's only available on some streaming network. Yeah, I mean that's the way uh, of 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 the world. You know, the only good thing if you, if you're if you're able to do it, you could buy almost anything on Amazon Prime. Just you yep. buy it and you and you just save it and you watch it. Anytime. And and if you are a you ja- if you are a jazz fan and you don't mm-hmm. have the 
the soundtrack to it in your jazz collection, you're missing something because it's one of the, I know it's a cartoon, but the soundtrack is one of the best jazz records you're ever going to hear. December 10th, 1978, Superman, the movie opens uh, nationwide. I actually remember seeing this film at the Kingsway Movie Theater in Brooklyn, New York. A couple friends and myself, I was, I was a kid, really young. And I remember the screen opening and it had one of the great uh, prologues of all time of a, being in a movie theater with the screen opening and you saw the Superman comic book with narration. Also, I could argue it's a perfect film. Richard Donner paved the way for what we see now in a multi, multi-billion dollar industry of superhero movies in Hollywood. Christopher Reeve, if there's a thing as being born to play a part and God delivered an actor to do a certain thing, it would be Christopher Reeve as Clark Kent and Superman. Uh, Gene Hackman as Les Luthor, Margaret Kidder as Lois Lane. Uh, great movie, Ken. Yeah, and can't forget Marlon Brando. And who, Marlon Brando. Who got overpaid who, for 13 I, seconds. I, I, and I talked about this on the show with Mike. Marlon Brando, when he sat down with Richard Donner about playing Jarrell, and he, he was awesome as Jarrell, and his screen presence really helped elevate this movie. But he says to Richard Donner, how, how about we that? Uh, how about uh, Jarrell be a green bagel? And he speaks from a green bagel. <laughs> and Donner, Don, Donner said, I don't think that's a good idea. And he said, how about I voice him out of a suitcase? And, and, and that didn't fly either. But, I mean, he had one of the strangest minds, one of the most eccentric uh, people in the history of uh, film. But he was a great Jarrell. He yep. was a great Jarrell. He was. I can remember seeing that movie. I saw that movie on New Year's Eve, 1978, yeah. with okay. my future wife, my future mm-hmm. mother-in-law, my future brother-in-law. And I okay. remember at midnight, because back then they had showings for, you know, ran over midnight. Somebody from the theater opened up the door and yelled, Happy New Year. And, uh, you know, oh. so I, I will always remember that one. That's a cool one. Uh, two other ones, December 11th, uh, 1990, Magnum P.I. first airs on CBS starring Tom Selleck. Uh, that's what you call a good career break because uh, he's still going strong, Tom Selleck. Uh, and one of the, really one of the great uh, TV icons of, of all time now on Blue Bloods. He's yeah. great on Blue Bloods. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I, Blue yeah, Blue Bloods, Blue Bloods has been running forever. I'm, I'm, I don't watch network TV, but I know it's still on there. You know, I have a running joke, and the reason some of the CBS shows procedurals and do so well in, in Blue Bloods is because the audience is too old and cranky to get up and change your remote. So they just keep it on CBS 24 hours a day. But the ratings for these shows are 10 million. They still, this show still draws 9, 10 million people a week on a, on a Friday night. Yep. So uh, Tom Selleck has a job, I think, for the rest of his uh, life. And last one, uh, d- uh, December 11, 1987, Wall Street, Oliver Stone's Wall Street, opens the theaters, becomes a huge hit an adult character-driven movie headlined by the Oscar-winning performance of Michael Douglas as Gordon Gecko. I say to myself, Ken, would this movie fly in a movie theater in 2022? Mm, I don't know. Yeah, it, 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 it might only because, you know, things... Then, then again, I think The Big Short was really on... Uh, uh, was I a like hit. that movie. Good movie. But that was more of a hit, I think, when it went to streaming, so... I don't know, but I, it, it might only because there was some sex in it, and uh, you know it, uh, we we do like. I think we still like movies about Wall Street. 
It's a good, it's a good subject. But uh, listen, uh, he was great in that movie, Michael Douglas, one of my all-time favorite uh, actors. So now we're going to bounce into our top ten favorite characters in movies of all time. And I'm going to let you. We're going to do ten through six, and then we're going to do five through one. I'm going to let you start the proceedings. Yeah, and I, I did. So I'm sure you've done a lot of research. I, I have, and I did it from the perspective of the performance in the character. So, okay. I mean, because I mean, it's easy to say who the great characters were, and you know, because mm-hmm. you. Well, I just want to preface: I didn't pick superheroes. Like I love, Bruce, like everybody knows who knows me. I love the character of Bruce Wayne, and I love Batman. Like I see my in my mind's mind in my alter ego, I'm Bruce Wayne. Okay, so I didn't pick those type. Like I didn't pick Bond. I didn't pick James Bond, Indiana Jones. I tried to stay away from those. So I went with more um, realistic human characters that are probably more believable in the real world than some of the fantasy type characters. So I didn't pick. I didn't pick Bruce Wayne, uh, who I normally would have if I just was throwing it out there. Okay. I just wanted to say that. Yeah, so no, I, I, and I, I had a tie for 10, so I'm doing them both at number yeah, 10. Yeah, I have a tie for one, so <laughs> okay. I'm going to cheat a little because this is the same type of character. But go ahead, you start. Okay, my, my first character I might be the only movie ever where a child actor was the lead and mm. had half of their time on the screen by themselves. Because usually the, the, the child actor had an adult with them. And... To have a child actor carry a movie and make it one of the most memorable movies ever, and then, of course, it's been uh, recently redone. I don't like Macaulay Culkin as a person, but Macaulay Culkin as Kevin McAllister, one of the best. One and the, I mean, I, I couldn't watch the remake only because it wasn't Macaulay Culkin, but Home Alone 1990, Kevin McAllister. And the other one, very similar, it was an adult, but... It was a person who took a character that could have been cute and made that character fantastically endearing, and that was Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire. So that's my number 10. It's a good, listen, it's a, it's a good pick. You know, I, I've been uh, de- debating in my mind, like if I had a pick, because um, in, in my ice cream parlor, I always put on, now I'm starting to put Christmas movies. So I like, okay, do I put on Home Alone or Home Alone 2, Lost in New York? And I, I always find myself, for some reason, siding with Home Alone, Lost in New York because I did like the setting, but I got to tell you, it's a good pick. Yeah, I like, I, I, I like. Good pick. It's a good pick because Macaulay Culkin, to get great performances, and that was a great performance as a child actress, there's something about. They have to have an adult sensibility. They have to be smarter than the average peer. And he had whatever he had, he had it. And uh, he made those movies great. Yeah, and any of us who's ever shaved with a razor and then put on aftershave, he got that down perfectly. My, Boy, that would, that, that would hurt. Here, uh, go ahead. You, now my, go, through nine, and go through nine, eight, seven, yeah. six. Number, number nine. Uh, guy, this was a character. Again, I look at it. It's a character I identify with one person, only one person in life. Sorry, Lou Diamond Phillips. You're not King Moncut of Siam. It's Yul Brenner as King Moncut of Siam and the King and I in 1956. Okay. Yeah, Brenner, he, he brought, he, you had this dictator, this tyrant, and he brought a humanity to that role. I really enjoyed that. Number, number eight. Again, character, the, the actor did this. Somebody else could have done this role and it wouldn't have been the same thing, but. 
one scene, well, two scenes, the piano scene and eating the cob of miniature corn at the cocktail party. Tom Hanks is Josh Baskin in Big. The fact that Elizabeth Perkins was in, I love Elizabeth Perkins. Mm-hmm. Tom Hanks was just so good. You believed that he was actually a child in an adult body. Now, originally, you know, I just want to point out, originally in that film, Robert De Niro was attached and in uh, pre-production and then bowed out. Uh, and then they went with uh, Tom Hanks. I mean, that would have been a very different movie with De Niro, but Tom Hanks, obviously iconic in that movie. Now, you're probably going to, uh, number seven, I'm going to start going back in time a little bit. Uh, number seven, Jack Lemon played Joe Clay. Remember what movie uh, that was? The nope. No, that was the Days of Wine and Roses, okay. where he plays the alcoholic, yes, yes. Turned, turned sober, and the wife becomes alcoholic. A wonderful movie, a not, not an uplifting movie, but... To me, the best performance that Lemon ever had was his Joe Clay in Days of Wine and Roses. Number six, this movie would have sucked without him, and that's a technical movie term. F. Murray Abraham as Wolfgang Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart in Mozart. He made that movie. Uh, you're going, you're going, you're going. Back. Boy, the industry was very different when these movies were playing in theaters. But that movie did very well. It was it won the Oscar for Best Picture, if I recall. Yeah, it did, and because of his performance. Yeah. I mean, he played right. an over-the-top uh, Mozart. It, well, here's what's interesting about that actor is that he he was he got critically acclaimed roles, and he also did as his career went on. He did a lot of less. Uh, a, a lot of less um, vehicles than you would have thought uh, that he was qualified to, to do. To, to do. Uh, a very interesting career, actually, yes, Mary uh, Abraham. And those are my, that's, that's my 10 through 6. Good good list. Here's my, uh, my 10 through 6. Number 10, I went with Seth Brundle, uh, played by Jeff Goldblum in David Cronenberg's 1986, in my opinion, masterpiece, The Fly. This is a a, a performance of, uh, of of eccentricity, of sadness, of desperation. It's great acting. It's a love story. That character opposite Gina Davis. It's one of my all-time favorite movies, The Fly, and I think one of the best films of the 1980s. I love Jeff Goldblum, and is, he's had a really good career, but to me, this is the definitive performance by Jeff Goldblum of playing a scientist who gets involved in an experiment that goes completely wrong and he gets transfused with a housefly. It's a slow burn descent into something really horrible, but it works on multiple levels. So I love that character. Number nine. How about this, Ken? I went with Moses, played by Charlton Heston in the 1956 classic epic, Must See Every Easter, The Ten Commandments. I did a big, big screen revival of this film about six years ago. And I got to tell you, it plays like a superhero origin story. And you don't have to be a religious person to love this movie. This movie, Moses is basically the first superhero in film. And uh, it just, Charlton Heston is iconic. I couldn't think of another actor who could ever play uh, Moses. And this is a great movie. Still holds up. I I love this. I love every frame of this movie. But Moses uh, is one of my all-time favorite movie characters. Number eight, Axel Foley, played by Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop, 1984. I saw this movie probably eight or nine times in a theater in 84 with big crowds. Very few actors could command a movie screen and an audience sucked in, just 
taking them literally for a two-hour ride with multiple supporting characters that are a ton of fun. But Axel Foley is an iconic, great genre character. Eddie Murphy, that's my number eight. Number seven, one of my favorite films of all time, uh, Virgil Hiltz, The Cooler King, in The Great Escape from 1963, played by Steve McQueen. A perfect, and I mean a perfect movie with a musical score by uh, Elmer Bernstein. Great direction. All the cast is fantastic. Colburn, James Garner, Donald Pleasance, Richard Attenborough, but anchored by the presence of Steve McQueen in his signature role. I could watch this movie all day long, anytime, anywhere. So that's my number seven. And my number six... Michael Corleone, played by Al Pacino in The Godfather 1 and 2, one of the great slow burn descents into darkness in the history of film. This is when Al Pacino was an actor, and his portrayal of this character was iconic. And I, you could not do it better. To me, every time I watch it, I'm, I'm completely hooked and intrigued. Michael Corleone, one of the greatest characters in the history of film. So there you have my 10 through 6. Interestingly, you didn't mention him as being in uh, Godfather 3. Well, I like. Listen, here's the thing about Godfather 3. Well, he's a different character, and he's a different actor in 1990. Uh, in Godfather 3. I do like Godfather 3. I thought the first half of that movie is really good. I talked about this with Mike on the show. I think the first half of Godfather 3 is really good. It's the second act that's not as interesting when it gets involved in the in the politics of the Vatican and the, and the, and the guy. It just, it doesn't, just, nobody cares. But Andy Garcia is electric in Godfather 3. But Al Pacino in Godfather 1 and 2. One for the books of, of movie lore, no doubt about it. Now, now, what's interesting looking now as we go into our top five, uh, I realized that only one of my top five occurred after 1950. Uh, wow, so, okay. Yeah, yeah, so we're going back. Number five, uh, it became a Broadway, well, West End musical. Um, it's the, to me, it's a much better story than A Star is Born about a star losing stardom and what happens i'm ready for my close-up mr demille is one of the best lines ever uh for for our show on on cool 98.5 i used the the musical tag at the end also with the dialogue tag where she says i'm still big it's the movies that got small it was gloria swanson she was playing norma desmond in sunset boulevard she plays that as well as anybody could have so I'm going with okay. I'm going with Norma Desmond for number Good five. Pick. My number five, I'm going to go with with uh, Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver and James Cameron's Aliens, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, female oriented action stars ever put in a movie vehicle. Uh, her action oriented stuff, not by design but by necessity. Her bond with the little girl Newt in the film, one of the great mother bond. You know, they're not really mother daughter, but it's one of the great mother daughter bonding uh, pairings in the history of film. It's a brilliant movie. She's great in this movie, nominated for best actress in '86, uh, but uh, iconic. I love Sigourney Weaver as Ripley and Cameron's Aliens, so that is my number five, Ken. You're going to be surprised by my number four that it's only at number four because this was the first time anybody played a gangster with humanity. He was the forerunner 
to Tony Soprano. He cried when he saw the body of his son riddled with bullets. He played with his, well, he died playing with his grandson, but he was a family man first, a mobster okay. second. That was Marlon Brando and Victor Corleone in The Godfather 1972. That's my number four. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, great, it's a great pick. And, and it's, it's easy to argue one of the best films ever made. My number four, a very special character for me, very special film for me. I didn't see this in the theater when it came out in 1976, but J.D. Uh, Books, played by John Wayne in The Shootist, his final film, one of the most poetic, thought-provoking, moving, character-driven characters I've ever seen in a film. Very special because it really summed up the career of John Wayne, who at the time was battling an illness. But here's this funny thing, Ken, about the shooters in 76. John Wayne was not the initial uh, choice to play this role. They originally went to... um, they went to Paul Newman, turned it down. George E. Scott turned it down. Clint Eastwood turned it down. Gene Hackman turned it down. Then they go to John Wayne. Thank the Lord, because it was a role from the heavens. Very poetic, powerful movie. His scene with uh, uh, with, with, with um, Jimmy Jimmy Stewart in the beginning of the film, when, when Stewart is a doctor, gives him his diagnosis that his time is short. Uh, Wayne's scenes with... Lauren Bacall, I think are fantastic. I mean, just simply classic stuff. And also his scenes with Ron Howard. I love this character. Uh, so it's my number four. All right. My, my number three uh, started off on my list as number one. And then I moved two ahead of it. Uh, 1942 played Richard Blaine, the American who can't go back to America, but we never find out why. Uh, Humphrey Bogart as Richard Blaine in Casablanca. I can't argue. It's an iconic uh, movie, but you're really an historian going back. Uh, I, I don't know if me and Mike have gone back this far, but that's actually uh, really cool. My number three, John McClane, played by Bruce Willis in Die Hard. I've said this many times with Mike on the show. Sitting in movie theater, 1988, Friday afternoon, King's Plaza movie theater. I walk in. I loved the towering inferno, so I couldn't wait to see Die Hard. I didn't know much about Bruce Willis other than he was on a TV show called Moonlighting. But my goodness, was this movie a perfect film from beginning to end. And I said this before, halfway through the movie is one of the first times I said when I was watching a movie for the first time in a theater, I'm watching a masterpiece. And I knew this movie would live long generationally as a classic. I saw this movie probably nine or ten times in a theater audiences just ate this movie up but Bruce Willis is born to play this role and he's a great great role and a great character John McClane in Die Hard who uh, is the same character actually from a novel called Tomorrow Never no yeah uh, it, it, the, the the detective was a novel and the movie was Frank Sinatra so Frank Sinatra who was in his 60s actually was offered the option of John McClane in Die Hard. And he said, I'm a little too old for this. So ultimately, after a slew of actors passed, Bruce Willis got the role and he made John McClane his own. So that is my number three. My number two, this guy played Jimmy Pearsall in Fear Strikes Out. I think he, I don't think he could ever play anybody sane, but I don't know that there was ever, and it's only because of sentiment that I came up with my number one. I don't know if ever, anybody ever created a better character on the screen than Anthony Perkins, Norman Bates, Psycho, 1960. You know, I had a buddy, I, I told you this before, I had a buddy who saw Psycho 
an older guy in a theater. And he said at the end of the movie that this people in the audience actually walked out holding hands because right. it unnerved them that much. You know, you, you look back at movies like that in that generation before I was born, but um, it's just a different place and different time and a different culture. And movies worked on people differently because we were overexposed, we're desensitized to what we are now in this uh, existence of, of a modern age but uh you know as much as you know as i respect psycho i stated many times in this show i do think psycho 2 in 1982 is is one is one of my all-time favorite sequels but uh i like psycho 2 is an enjoyable movie even more than the original psycho but it is a good pick my number two i'm gonna go with the character of rocky balboa played by sylvester stallone one of the great pop culture iconic characters of all time i remember going as a young person seeing rocky in a theater in 76 running down the block when the movie ended three blocks away to my uh apartment uh that i grew up in with my with my parents couldn't wait to to work out very motivational but at the end of the core day at the end of the day the core part of rocky is it's, it's a love story and the luster between Adrian and Rocky is great. Uh, Paula Creed was an incredible supporting character, but Rocky is a character. The connection he had with the general audience is still there today. Characters span 40-something years. Uh, kudos to Sylvester Stallone for creating the character of Rocky Balboa. My, my number two. My number one character almost, almost went to Shirley Temple. Drum roll, please. Uh, yes, we're we're back to 1939 for this one. I I'm going to submit. Really? I'm going to submit anybody. Are you saying Red Butler? I, no, 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 no. Really? I, I'm saying that if you ask people over the age of 50, is it Dorothy? Yeah, it is Dorothy. And if he's, I think, no, it's a good one. Please, I think one. any, I think that anybody in my generation or above, yeah. the okay. one, the one role that we could tell you who played it. And we can tell you what the song was. Everybody knows Somewhere Over the Rainbow, her iconic performance singing. Everybody knows The, the Wizard of Oz. Uh, it, to me, maybe because I grew up with it, but the greatest performance, the greatest role, because it has lived. You know, we saw new generations flock to this movie a couple of years ago when we did that revival sure. where we got an entire weekend. It yeah. is Judy Garland as Dorothy Gale in The Wizard of Oz. It's a great pick, you know, and a lot of people may may not realize. I, I believe she was seventeen years old yes. when she did this movie. Okay, but when you watch when you watch this movie, obviously her aura, her mental uh, maturity, it feel it feels like you're watching somebody uh, a lot older. Not a lot older, but you know what I mean in their twenties. Yep. Uh, and and she just holds the screen with these iconic characters extremely well, and it is what they call. The Wizard of Oz, a, a timeless movie. When you watch anybody who watches The Wizard of Oz, you're not you don't really you're not thinking time period. You're just thinking this movie's awesome, and uh, that was a great character. That's a good pick, Ken. My number one, I split because I, I picked two different uh, characters because it's the same theme. One for me, this is just personally for me. The, my my number one would be Reverend Scott, played by Gene Hackman in the Poseidon Adventure. And with Jakotai, with Father Karras, played by Jason Miller and The Exorcist, because two characters who suffer the same uh, dichotomy in their films, they have religious doubt. And I always found that very uh, intriguing uh, for a movie character, uh, beside Adventure being my all-time favorite movie, and I love that character, who is really a composite 
of Jesus and Moses and along the way in that journey in the Poseidon Adventure, Reverend Scott constantly gets doubted by all the other characters and ultimately at the end uh, sacrifices himself for the greater good of uh, his fellow man. And, and same really with, with Jason Miller's Father Karras in The Exorcist. But Jason Miller was like an everyman uh, he didn't have movie star looks, but what a great actor. And the rawness of The Exorcist gives that film its incredible power to this day. So Reverend Scott and Father Karras are co-tie for my number one. This was fun, Ken. Yeah, since we have a few minutes here, let me let me just yeah. mention to you and get your reaction to my five, my next five that didn't make it. Okay, good. F- 15 was Clint Eastwood as Harry Callahan. Good pick. Because you know, we had a whole... Well, hey, let me ask you a question about that pick. Yep. I don't think you could do Harry Callahan in 2022. I don't think so. Uh, it's being that when I was looking at IMDb to find out what year Dirty Harry came out, it says racist uh, cop uh, uh, terrorizes <laughs> and tortures uh, uh, victims. No, you couldn't. No, you could not. Num- number 14. I don't know why people love this movie so much, but her her role in it, was absolutely crazy. Audrey Hepburn is Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tip- Tiffany's. Okay. Uh, number 13, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Truman Capote. Great actor, man. He was a great actor. I'm surprised neither one of us had this in our top 10. Number 12, Raymond Babbitt, Dustin Hoffman, Rain That's Man. a great character. Well, listen, you could do a top 100. I yep. mean, easily. Go ahead, what's the other one? Because I, yep. I got two outside okay, my list. Quick. Okay, number, number 11, uh, because of the fact that back in 1999, we didn't really recognize transgender as like we do today. Hillary Swank playing Brandon Tina in Boys Don't Cry in 1999. Wow, you really go. That's a good memory. That's, that's, that, listen, I have a lot of respect for Hillary Swank. I think she's a fantastic actress that uh, it, it really gets enveloped into the characters that she uh, plays. Yep. She uh, did, a, did a great uh, the, the, the lady that got lost, the airplane lady. And, 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 and two outside my list would have been Christopher Walken's Johnny Smith in the Dead Zone, my favorite Stephen King adoption, although it's nothing like the book. The movie's a lot better. I just love that performance in that cat. I love that character. I agree a and, thousand percent. And then I would have went right outside my top ten was the character of Red, played by Morgan Freeman, in the iconic Shawshank Redemption. I could watch Morgan Freeman read a phone book. Uh, he's that good, but this might be his, his, his amazing career, but his definitive character, I think, is Red in, in, in Shawshank. Well, what a great movie. Uh, it is a wonderful movie, and another one of those movies that probably gained more life and fame after it was shown over and over again on television than it was when it originally came out. I I agree, and I did. I remember seeing Shawshank in the theater, but uh, that has gained a mess following uh because it's one of those movies that airs on tnt and t and amc and, and tbs all the time like I, you could do as times you change the channels every other hour shawshank was on tv and know what it did it hooked you like the godfather oh uh, if it if it was on my second wife kept it on she loved that movie but you know doing this list we have yeah. to soon do a list of the best characters because we said we were only doing it by the you know the the leading actor there's, there is probably an equal list where you can come up with the, where it was a supporting actor whose sure. character stole the show. Yep, and we'll do that uh, probably in the next few weeks. So I had a blast doing this, Ken. Uh, leading up to Christmas time, next few weeks, we'll start to talk more 
about some of our maybe favorite uh, Christmas characters or Christmas films to the Wawa audience. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much hey, for but, listening. But, but Chuck, and be, yeah. one thing is, I, I thought you already mentioned one of your Christmas characters when you were talking about uh, uh, Die Hard. Listen, Bruce Willis might not agree, but Die Hard is one of the great Christmas movies. Of, uh, and and we have we didn't time. we didn't hit quite the, uh, didn't quite hit fifty five minutes. I have to mention this. I am shocked yeah. that you didn't have Jimmy Stewart from It's a Wonderful yeah, Life. I, I, listen, I, I could have put I, 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 again, you know, really could have did a top twenty five. I, I Jimmy Stewart one ten twelve. Uh, he, he easily could be there. Uh, one of the great uh, characters. Uh, one of the great scripts. Actually, it's a wonderful life of all time. That's that's literally that script was like a blueprint of perfect uh, and almost like a storyboard. Just filming that script, and they made uh, an absolutely perfect movie by Frank Capra. I agree. Okay, I won't so, interrupt you again, Chuck. Okay, so Ken, thanks a lot to the audience. Thanks a lot, Ken. I will see you next week. Always a pleasure. Okay, take it easy, Chuck. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. by Federated Media.